0: Well today we're continuing in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew and if you are with us uh, for the first time or you haven't been with us for a while we've been in the Gospel of Matthew and uh, we are just continuing to make our way through uh, the Gospel and today we are going to be uh, in chapters 16 and 17 and if you have your Bibles with you, I, I would actually request you to open it up to that por- uh, portion today because uh, there's, a, there's an important little point that I want to make that it'd be helpful if you actually had your Bibles open. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have your Bibles with you, don't feel badly. Uh, so just, you can, you'll still uh, hear the point I'm trying to make. It's just helpful to also see it. Well, like many passages in the Bible that we're going to be looking at today, this passage we're looking at has often been broken up into little pieces, and each piece has, had, has a lot to say. This is one of these passages which is easy to break up into four or five verses at a time, and as we read through it, you'll see many familiar uh, teachings that come out of this passage. But like much of the Bible, this is really, these little, the passage we're going to be looking at today and the pieces that we normally break it up into actually are, are part of a greater whole. And very often when we don't read the whole thought, we can become confused as to what the point is or, or what it is that the Bible is trying to teach. So today we're going to go through this passage starting in chapter 16, verse 24. And we're going to go through the whole thought. And, and you'll see what I mean as a, as when I say that it's often broken up into little pieces as we go along. And I want to give you a warning if you're with us for the first time or if, you're, uh, if you haven't been with us very long. We're going to go through a ton of scripture today. And it's going to feel like you're just getting information with a fire hose. And it's not really the way we normally do things. It's not the way I normally preach at IBCD. But there's a time and a place for everything. And this is, this is one of those times when it's really best to look at things as a whole. So without trying to explain everything further, let's uh, get going here as we look through this passage. starting in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now this is a good example where oftentimes, this is a portion where people will often stop and preach on, and for good reason. There's a lot of good stuff in here to unpack. There's an entire sermon in here. There's probably three or four sermons in here. But this isn't where the thought ends, because you see in verse 27, there's this connecting word for. So Jesus is setting this up. He's setting it up. This, this little teaching that He's given here about giving up your life and following Christ, taking up the cross, is leading to this next portion. For the Son of Man Is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, if we stop here, this is where the chapter ends, and if we stop here, we're left with this question out there What does Jesus mean? when he looks at his disciples, and be clear, he's talking to the people that are right in front of him here. Some people have tried to say he's talking about the generation that will be alive during the coming of, the second coming of Christ. But that's not. He's talking to the people right in front of him. So what does it mean when Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Because this is a bit of an issue. It's kind of hanging out there. Have we seen Jesus come? Has the second coming taken place? Is so this becomes an issue. We need to understand what he's talking about here because this becomes one of those points that some people will point to and say Jesus was wrong and the Bible is wrong and if Jesus is wrong and the Bible is wrong then what, is you, what are you really basing your faith upon? So we need to understand passages like this. And there's And there's This passage is understandable, but it is a deep one. It's a deep dive that we're going to have to go into. And this is why I wanted you to open your Bibles, because if you look, this is where chapter 16 ends. And I've told you before, and we've talked about this in the past, that we have to be careful when we're reading the Bible, reading the Scriptures, to not let the chapters and verses dictate how we read. Because the Gospel of Matthew was written... And all the Bible was written long before the whole chapter and verse system came into place. And the chapter and verse system is a, is a helpful system to help us find things in the Bible, right? But sometimes the break, the chapter breaks, the verse breaks, interrupt the thought of the, of the author as he was writing. And if we allow ourselves to stop the thought here because this is the end of chapter 16 and verse se, uh, chapter 17 starts then we become confused because we don't get the whole picture. And if you look at the same story, I don't look at it now but I'll just tell you for those of you who like to dig around the Bible, in both Mark and Luke the same story is told and the same teaching is told in chapter 9 of both Mark, chapter 9 of Luke. It's kind of easy to remember. You don't have the break here. And so you see it flow more more naturally. Because he leads then, after this statement when he says, They will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all immediately follow that with an event that is known as the transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, And led him up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. Now, the transfiguration, what it means is that Jesus' glory, who he really is, without any kind kind of cloak of his humanity, is removed and he's revealed in his glory. And it describes what it looked like. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down onto the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now keep that little phrase in mind. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. And they have done to him everything they wished. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now, there are a few verses out of the Mark and Luke passage of this story, which, which I think are interesting, and they add a little insight. One is from the Gospel of Mark. Mark, when it talks about this same event, when they were coming down the mountain and Jesus says to them, if you look, if you go back, and he says to them as he's, as he's coming down to the mountain, don't tell anyone what you've seen till the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. In Mark, we have this little, this little verse which gives us a, a, a little insight. The disciples, they, they're the they, kept the matter to themselves discussing what raising from the dead meant. Now that seems pretty clear to us what it means to be raised from the dead. And we'll get back to why were they wondering what does it mean? Why were they discussing raised from the dead? Because we do find out that when Jesus is crucified, the disciples are shocked even though he's told them that the Son of Man is going to suffer, he's going to be put to death, and he will raise, he'll be raised from the dead. They're not making a connection here. And we're going to look at why that is. The other one is found in the Gospel of Luke. And Luke answers just a little bit that question, what was Jesus and Elijah and Moses talking about? Because when you like to know what were they talking about? And Luke gives us a little insight. It says this, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So we have this insight from Luke. They were speaking to him about his departure. And what his departure means can mean his, his crucifixion, but mostly what it probably means is his ascension. Because if we remember that Jesus' departure was crucial to an event taking place. And what was that event, that Jesus' departure was crucial in order for it to take place? Do you remember? It's found in the Gospel of John. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was going to leave, the disciples were upset, and Jesus had told them, I'm going to be leaving, and they don't like it. They don't understand why he's leaving. They're upset to hear that he's leaving. And then Jesus tells them, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. The counselor is another name for the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the theological term is the paraclete. He's the advocate. He's like kind of your, your lawyer. The counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. This is where you see the paraclete, the lawyer aspect of the, of the Holy Spirit. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you you will see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. There he's talking about Satan. And how the power of Satan is going to become diminished by the cross of Jesus Christ. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. So Jesus knew he was going deep with the disciples. But they had no, they didn't have the capacity to follow him at this point. They didn't even understand that he was really going to be crucified, and and then resurrected. They didn't get that. So he just kind of says, "There's more. This is a deep thing. There's more going on to it. But eventually you'll understand it." And when does the when was the event of the Holy Spirit coming? What do we call that? The day of Pentecost. If you look in the Book of Acts, this is this event where that where it happens, where the Holy Spirit comes. It says. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, they being the disciples, all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And in this case, they're talking very specifically about other understandable languages, but they weren't native to the disciples they spoke in other tongues as the spirit enabled them and so all these events that are taking place we see taking place here these are all events that are part of a greater whole which jesus refers to as the coming of the kingdom of god and this is important to understand and these events, which are taking place, are fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. One of them we read just uh, earlier this morning when we talked about the, the one out of the gospel—not the gospel, the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, where he has the vision of one who, who is seen as a son of man, which means he sees us as a human type person, coming with clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Sovereign power means overall power. All people, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. So you see a kind of a connection back to the prophecy found in Pentecost. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that would not pass away. And his kingdom was one that would never be destroyed. And again, you'll see these events of the Holy Spirit. Other prophecies are explicitly referred to. Uh, after the Holy Spirit comes during Pentecost, the, the people think that the disciples must be drunk because they they're don't because they speaking all these different languages and, they, and they're energized by the Spirit and the people don't understand what's going on. And this is where Peter is the first one to preach after being filled with the Spirit. And he stands up and he says to the folks, we're not drunk. He says, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes the prophet Joel at this point. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right. So now let's come up for air. And talk about something a little less intense. Let's talk about sports. That makes sense, right? How many of you are are kind of sport fans, at least of one sport or another? Yeah, good. How many of you are football fans? The, the worldwide football. I'm not, I'm not setting you up for something here like soccer fans, yeah? So one of the things that I like to do when I watch sports, and I, and I like to watch American football, and, but I like, I like watching kind of little bits and pieces of other sports. And I find it interesting how someone who is analyzing the game, will often they'll find one or two or three important moments within that match that really define the whole match they'll say, this, this moment in the match or in the game, this moment, these really defined who won the game or really added character to the game. And some of those little moments themselves hold a lot of fame. For example, for those of you who are football fans, uh, when, I, when I say to you, Diego Maradona's hand of God goal, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you just kind of know, right? It's a famous, it's a famous play. You know, in, in, uh, I believe it was in the World Cup when Argentina was against England. Was it England? And he, he does this goal, and, uh, and on slow motion replay, it seems pretty clear that his hand got involved in scoring the goal. And it is, is famous for the last 40 years or so as Diego Maradona's Hand of God goal. That little 10 seconds is, in and of itself, a sporting event. But it's really just part of a greater whole where Argentina eventually wins the World Cup. If you're an American football fan, if I were to t- ask you about the immaculate reception, some of you might know what I'm talking about is when this guy named Franco Harris, it was a, it was a football game between uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers and this team at the time, they're called the Oakland Raiders, and the quarterback threw the ball, it went through the hands of his receiver, bounced off another guy. And all of a sudden, and the cameras don't follow it because the ball's going all over the place, this guy named Frank O'Hara suddenly has the ball in his hands and he's running and he scores a touchdown and and he wins the game for the Pittsburgh team and that was the first time Pittsburgh goes to the Super Bowl and wins the championship. And if you go to the Pittsburgh airport, to this day there's a statue of this guy and he's catching this ball down here and it's the Franco Harris Immaculate Reception. Within the city of Pittsburgh, this is, that moment is an event that defines their entire city. And, and the controversy is the camera never followed it, so they weren't sure if the ball touched the ground or not. Because if it touched the ground, the play would have been dead. And Franco Harris, to this day, refuses to say did the ball hit the ground or did he catch it out of the air? He just leaves it out there. You know, but they're these moments, these events, but they're just really part of a greater whole. They're just little bits of a greater story. That's kind of what we're seeing in all these passages. When Jesus talks about the coming of the kingdom of God, there are all these events which begin to take place. And they are the events which together are part of the greater whole, which is the coming of the kingdom of God. And in the scripture, you have this—you have this thing called "already but not yet"—that you see throughout the scripture. Like, for example, you're, you are considered—if you are a believer—you are considered righteous in the eyes of God already. But when it comes to you actually living out what that means in its fullness, that's not yet. That will happen in the when either you die and you're in the presence of God, and we have the final resurrection, the recreation. That will be when you actually are fully truly living in that place of pure righteousness. But right now, you are given the credit for it. So it's already, but not yet. And the kingdom of God is a bit the same way. I want to read to you a quote from a guy named Keith Matheson. I don't expect you to know who he is, uh, because he's really not all that famous, but he puts this together well. He says, In the already slash not yet nature of the kingdom of God, The incarnation, that's the the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, second coming, and final judgment are all distinct events, but events that are part of a single whole, and that is the coming of the kingdom. Some of these events are associated with the kingdom's inauguration. That means the beginning of the kingdom's coming some with the consummation, which means the end of it. And so that's an important point to remember. When Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, the kingdom of God. These events like the the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the Pentecost, all of these are events which are in the inauguration or the beginning of the kingdom of God. But there are parts that are still yet to come. And so then let's run through this passage again and just talk about some of the quick lessons and how this relates to you in the kingdom of God. Going all the way back up to 1624. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Well, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? When it comes to this idea of the overall event regarding the kingdom of God, what Jesus is saying here is that if we want to participate in the kingdom of God, we cannot also participate in the kingdom of the world. We can't have our feet in both. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus kind of puts it a different way. When he prays for the disciples, he says that he prays that they may be in the world, but not of the world, that we are in the world. We can't, we can't change the fact that right now we live in this world, but this world offers values. This world offers certain hopes. This world offers certain uh, goals, which are incompatible with the kingdom of God. Goals such as a selfish, extremely selfish sense of success, extremely selfish sense of, you know, stepping on whoever you need to step on to reach the heights. These are, uh, the idea the pursuit of happiness is usually found in material things or having a bank account that, that can support whatever you want to do. These are goals and values and hopes of the world, but they are incompatible with the values and hopes of the kingdom, Jesus says, as much. when He says, "Do not store up for yourselves treasure. I mean, do not store up for yourselves treasures in the world where rust and moth can destroy, but rather just store up for yourselves treasures in heaven." And then he talks about, you know, those treasures in heaven are found in those things which glorify God with our lives. And so, what he's telling them as he begins this passage about the coming kingdom of God, he's saying, "If you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you cannot embrace." the values of the world. You have to be willing to die to the world. And that's why he talks about taking up the cross and following him. You die to the values that the world says, this is what's going to make you happy. You die to the hopes of the world that says, this is what will give you fulfillment. You die to the path of the world that says, this is how you define success. You have to die to that in order to be part of God's kingdom, God's values, God's success, God's hopes. So that's really what Jesus is talking about when he talks about taking up your cross and following him and being his disciple. He's talking about this within the context of being a part of the kingdom of God. And then he says, for the son of man is coming in his father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, Some standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So there are some kingdom coming events that have already happened. And we've already discussed some of these. The transfiguration. Because right after he says this, then he's revealed in his glory and it begins this this process of the coming kingdom of God. Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and the kingdom of God is established in this thing we call the church. The church is the kingdom of God on earth right now. Is the church fully, the full expression of God's glory and power? No, not yet. But it's the beginning. And then there are kingdom coming events that have not yet happened. For example, the second coming has not yet happened. Final judgment has not yet happened. Most of the events in Revelation, if you read the book of Revelation, most of those have yet to happen. And if you read the book of Revelation, at the end, when everything is finally done, then there is this new beginning. There is this dwelling with God. Instead of the Garden of Eden, we're in the city of God, but God is present with us. There, is no, there are no more tears. The power of sin and death has been destroyed. And, and we dwell within in the house of the Lord forever and ever. And that's where basically the book of Revelation ends. Now, I don't think that that means we just sit on a cloud and play a harp and hang out for the rest of time, but I think that's the end of this process of humanity. There's something more that comes after that, but that'll come. We don't need to know that. What we need to know is how to get there. And in the end, when you read the book of Revelation, in a sense, you're back at the beginning, like in the Garden of Eden where you had the Tree of Life. You had this relationship with God where he walked with them in the garden. There's a lot of parallels you find in the end of the book of Revelation Peter James and John they had a unique privilege of seeing Jesus in this heavenly glory during this transfiguration they got to see some of that we are in a unique time of history the disciples asked him when do the teachers of the law come why did I mean when did why did the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first now, this is, this is coming to trying to understand the Scripture, and I want to bring this into you just to help you kind of understand that the Bible can be confusing sometimes, and, and you have to go into it deep, and you have to take time with it. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. Jesus was talking about who? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was not the the blood and flesh of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah reincarnated. There's some kind of bad teachings out there about this whole thing. John the Baptist follows the model of Elijah, the model of the prophet, the model of the prophet in the desert. If you read about Elijah's story, he often was in the desert. He was kind of the lone man fighting against unrighteousness. Uh, He has this big fight on, on Mount Carmel with with uh, the priest of of, uh, Baal, and he's he's one of these characters that very much stands alone, but within the power of God. And Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is this model. And then he says, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, remember he had talked about that he's going to die and be raised from the dead, and the reason why I think the disciples struggled with this discussion about what does he mean by being raised from the dead is because in this one little teaching, Jesus on one point speaks about John the Baptist being Elijah in a, in a model sense, not in a literal sense, but he's a model of this. And then in the next breath, he speaks of his own suffering in a very literal way. And I think the disciples could not make that quick switch over. They're like, he's talking about that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come, and then he talks about his own suffering, and in their minds, I think they were still kind of in, well, if John the Baptist is kind of a, a model of Elijah, then when he's talking about his own death and, and being raised from the dead, he must be talking about that in a kind of model or allegorical sense as well, and he wasn't. He was being literal there, and I think this is why the disciples we're having to discuss this. And I think this is why when Jesus dies and is buried, the disciples act like this is, comes completely as a surprise. And they're deep in despair. And they have no sense that he's really going to be resurrected because they, didn't, they couldn't wrap their heads around when times when Jesus was being super literal and times when Jesus was not. And we struggle with that same thing. We want to read the Bible as literal most of the time. At least that's my, my upbringing. But there are times we have to realize, sometimes, as I said last week, the Bible is literally a metaphor, or it's literally a model, like when he says, John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. And that takes, that takes some, you know, knowing the Bible pretty well. And we have the benefit of hindsight where we can see this taking place. But then there are those things that are not really easy to understand. And Here's the passage about them discussing among themselves. There's some things that aren't easy to understand, but we go into it with humility. We go into it with a sense of, this is the best that we can do. But I want to end with this. When we talk about these events that take place, the event of the transfiguration, the event of Pentecost, the event that is all leading to the coming kingdom of God, which we are kind of in the middle of right now. We, we, see, we have the benefit of looking back and seeing these events take place, but we know that this, this isn't the end. There's some things yet to come. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, do you ever consider yourself an event in this history of the kingdom of God? How many of you think of yourself as an event that woke heaven up, which some of you need right now? You are an event that woke, that that just not necessarily woke up heaven, but caused heaven to explode with joy. Do you consider yourself that? Well, you are. We read the passage in Luke, and to be honest with you, this was a passage that God brought to me right before the sermon, so I don't have it on here, but it's found in Luke 15. He says that there is rejoicing in the kingdom of heaven. There is rejoicing among the angels when one sinner repents. When you repented, when you came to the place of realizing that God had loved you and that he gave his life for you and that you could receive from him that gift of eternal life, there was rejoicing in heaven. You were an event in the kingdom of God. You were an event of rejoicing on levels that we can't even begin to comprehend. And it's a little bit of a reminder of how much God loves you, but also of your value in the eyes of God. It should also be a reminder of those times when we are tempted to fall into sin or to walk in a way that we know is unrighteous, that we are held in high regard by God. And we should hold ourselves in high regard, so high that the idea of sin and just walking into that sin, whatever it is, is really beneath you. It's not who you are. It's not the sort of thing that causes rejoicing in heaven. And you are a person who caused rejoicing in heaven. So live at that level. Regard yourself at that level. And when that base sin begins to tempt you and says, come down here and dwell with us, come down here and dwell in their places of pornography. Come down here and dwell in the places of, of lying. Come down here and dwell with us in the places of cheating. Remind yourself that you are part of the kingdom of God and that because of your repentance, the angels rejoiced. and you are above the base desires of sin and you do not need to go there. There was a time when you were an unbeliever, you couldn't help but sin. You now live, if you're a believer in Christ in a time, you, you, can, you have that choice. You can choose to follow the spirit or the flesh. So what are you going to follow? Because, brothers and sisters, you are part of a mighty river of souls, the souls that have gone before you and the souls that have come after you. You are in that stream of history. And unlike Buddhism, which talks about the idea of nirvana being a place where you sort of dissolve into the great soul like a raindrop into the ocean, you don't lose yourself in Christ, you find yourself in Christ. Your identity is found. Who you were really meant to be is found. And this is where we dwell right now. We dwell in this uncomfortable area of already but not yet. As part of the church, you are dwelling in the kingdom which is already consummated through the transfiguration, through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, but has yet to be consummated by the, final, the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, and where things wrap up. And it can be hard to be in this place in the middle. Believe me, I'm in there with you. I know that sometimes the temptations of the world are very strong because this is here, this is right now. We know this. We can get our hands on it. But this temporary is just like the breath of wind that passes. We are created for eternity. And you are the sons and daughters of eternity. So live it and know it. That you are a part of this coming of the kingdom of God. You are in the midst of it right now. Walk in that with hope. Walk in that with that combination of both humility, but also with a sense of who you really are in Christ. And tell others, share others, let the light shine in your life. That you're not just some passing Moment of history that's going to be here today and forgotten tomorrow in Christ. You are part of the eternal kingdom of God. May you find joy in that. May you find a place of who you are in that. And may you live who you really are. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that your word is deep. And there are times that we come to it and it can be a little bit confusing. There can be times that it feels like that we're kind of a bit lost in it. But we also thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that we are a people that live uh, in the presence of your Holy Spirit. And by your Holy Spirit, you can guide us in understanding and bring us to a place where we live with hope. And Lord, as we consider our place within the universe, and that for those who are in Christ, that place is part of the kingdom of God, which is eternal. May we allow that to give us perspective in how we live this temporary life. And Lord, I know that uh, there are many that, that of us that go through times where it seems like the pressures and the fears and the, you know, just the, the events of our temporary life seem so pressing and seems to be so heavy upon us. But in those times of despair, may we remember that we were created to be children of hope and light and eternity, and we have that in Christ. May we live what we are. And may we share with others who they can be when they are willing to take up their cross, deny themselves, deny the values, deny the hopes, deny how the world tries to define how we need to live, and plant our foot firmly in the kingdom of God, and follow Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.